If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23 will be um, in verses 44 through 49 this morning. Uh, Next Sunday we'll consider the burial of Jesus in verses 50 through 55 of that chapter. And then we'll be into Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke. So our study in Luke is coming to a close. The, The trial and the suffering and the death of Christ that we've been thinking about are sometimes referred to as the passion of Christ. Maybe you've heard that that phrase. Um, the word passion in our day is used almost exclusively for, for romantic love of some kind. And so to talk about the passion of the Christ would seem strange to us, except for the fact that it's a pretty commonly used phrase and also the title of a big movie not too long ago. So we're familiar with it. It actually comes from the King James Version's translation of Acts 1-3, where it talks about the passion of Christ, all his passion. It's usually translated suffering in other translations. But I think passion is a good word, isn't it? It it sort of captures the the depth of of the pain and the anguish that Christ would have gone through. It dips, as it were, into the deep emotion that he would have felt at his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his, his crucifixion. And so we have, we have lingered here at the cross, um, seeking to feel the, the passion of the cross, to feel the passion of Christ. Of course, for those of, that were there that day, witnessing these things in the actual moment, the depth of emotion and that pain would have been clearly felt. We have to try to dip into this passage and get to it but they would have felt it clearly. And when Christ finally breathed his last, as it says in this passage, I think some people clearly saw who he was, and others were maybe numb to the experience. Maybe you've had that experience where tragedy strikes, and you just don't even know how how you're supposed to, to feel. It's hard to characterize the response to these kind of events, especially for those that had devoted their lives to following Jesus. What were they supposed to feel? How are you supposed to feel when something like that happens? Could they feel anything? How do you respond to tragedy like that? I just finished a book. It's called In the Heart of the Sea. And it relates the story of a whaling ship in 1819 from Nantucket, Massachusetts. It was called the Essex. That was the name of the boat. Um, And it was rammed by an 85-foot-long sperm whale. Uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And in the span of about 10 minutes, this whale rammed that boat twice, and the boat sunk. And the men who had been on board found themselves in a small whaling ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, about as far from land as you could possibly be. There were two other whaling ships that had been out seeking whales, and they came back. But as they relayed the, the, the author relayed this story, they all sat in these boats silent for some time, unable to grasp what had just happened in the span of 10 minutes. They stared at this waterlogged ship. It was now lying on its side with its masts in the water, and they were in complete shock, trying to figure out how in the world can we survive now that our ship has gone under. And I think in a similar way, the the speed with which everything happened for Christ in these final days 
and and the tragedy and the the way things have completely turned upside down for Jesus and his followers it kind of it's that same sort of feeling this astonishing things have happened in this short time period and they evoke shock and and dismay and a host of other indescribable emotions to all the people that witnessed them and so when Jesus finally breathes his last the impossible has now happened before the eyes of the people that are standing there and they just don't know how to respond. So we've seen some of these shocking events, but we'll see a few more this morning. And then once again, we'll get a glimpse into how people responded in that moment and how we might respond to the death of Christ. In these few words in, in Luke 23:44 to, to 49, we're going to see the, the way that he dies and all that happened around him and how it made it clear that he was not just an ordinary man And so we're all compelled to consider this event, to consider what happened, and to consider how we should respond. So let's look at this passage, Luke 23, and I'll begin in verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Notice first with me in this passage in verses 44 through 46, we're going to see three divine and supernatural events that happen. Three divine and supernatural events. The first of these is the darkness of heaven. The darkness of heaven. Luke lets us know that it was about the sixth hour, which means it was about noon. Um, that helps us, again, see how quickly everything happened. Remember that the, the trial couldn't formally start until that morning. And so everything, all the trial has happened. And at, at this moment, by noon, Jesus is, is on the cross. Things have happened amazingly fast. But more important to the immediate context is the fact that it would have been the middle of the day. It would have been the time when the sun was highest in the sky, when it was brightest. That's important because... We're then told that there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would be the until three o'clock. So from from noon till three, as Luke puts it, the sun's light failed. Some people have said that this was possibly a solar eclipse. In fact, I just watched a movie recently on the life of Barabbas, and there was a crucifixion scene in there, and there was a solar eclipse that occurred in 1961, and so the director of that movie filmed the crucifixion scene during the full solar eclipse in 1961. Pretty amazing. But it's not what happened. Uh, It's not possible, because this was during the Passover, and as anyone who knows anything, a, a, a solar eclipse can't happen when there's a full moon, which is what would have been going on. I didn't know that. I read that. but So that's not what happened. Others would say that this was purely symbolic, was what Luke is writing. And, and it was symbolic, wasn't it? It surely was. Darkness appears in the prophets as a sign of God's displeasure or his anger. So you might be tempted to think about God's sadness or his heartache or that heaven was 
was weeping, maybe, but I don't think that's really what Luke is trying to communicate here. I think the darkness is more a symbol of the wrath of God. The wrath of God being poured out on His Son, and the wrath of God against those who are killing the Son of God. But the way that Luke writes the narrative would seem also to indicate that he intends it to be more than just purely symbolic. That phrase, the sun's light failed. I think there was a real, tangible darkness that happens. It was actual, it was physical. And it happened during the brightest part of the day. We've all kind of experienced that maybe in a smaller way on a summer day when when a storm rolls in. And the clouds, you were, you know, it was bright outside, and all of a sudden you look out the window and say, when did it get so dark? But I, this was not simply caused by a passing cloud, but rather the darkness is caused by the displeasure of God over this whole situation. So we might imagine the people in Jerusalem looking up at the, at the sky and wondering why it was so dark in the middle of the day, going into their house and lighting lamps so that they could see what they were doing. Maybe, you know, this is during the Feast of Passover, when they remembered when they the angel of death passed over them in the, the tenth plague. But what was that ninth plague? It was darkness, when darkness was over the whole face of the land. Maybe they recalled that. What did all this mean? What was Pilate thinking at this point? What's Herod thinking? What's Pilate's wife thinking? She told him not to do this, and now the whole sky is darkened. Maybe all the people who were there watching Jesus suffering, what, what, what are they thinking? Did people start to wonder if something more than just the death of some common criminal was, was happening? Well, the first of these divine and supernatural events is the, the darkness of heaven. But that's not the only message that God is giving. The second one is the tearing of the curtain. The tearing of the curtain, you see that in, in verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There are lots of curtains in the temple, but it's, it's pretty readily agreed that this was um, the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The holy of holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, and it was the place where symbolically the presence of God actually dwelt. We read that in Hebrews 9, we were thinking about that, that the only person that was allowed to go in there was the high priest, and how, long, how often was he allowed to go in? Once a year. And, and before he went in, he had the, the, there were elaborate sacrifices and cleansings that had to be performed. And as he went in, he went in in his high priestly garb with bells at the bottom so they could continue to hear him moving with a rope tied around him in case God struck him dead. They could not go in and get him. They would drag his body out. This was a holy place. And the curtain, the curtain's not just like a curtain in your house or a shower curtain. This is a, a thick curtain with layers of fabric woven together. And in that temple, it would have stretched probably from, from floor to ceiling about 60 feet. That's probably taller than this building that we're in, is how high that curtain was. If, if a story is about 10 feet, that would be six stories. This building's four stories. You might just think about it being about as tall as this building. It's a, massive curtain. So this is not some sort of act of vandalism by a rebel in the midst of the darkness. They go in and tear the curtain. This is, this is a statement from heaven. This is a supernatural act of God. And as Matthew puts it, it was torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. 
the symbolism of that event, I don't think you can summarize it into one idea. God was saying so much. I think along with the darkness, these things are coupled together, that the tearing of the curtain is a sign of judgment. Maybe it's, in fact, a, a foreshadowing of the coming full destruction of the temple that's going to happen. This is just the beginning of what will happen. In AD 70, it will be completely wiped out. But it also speaks of the end of this old covenant system of sacrifices and, and ceremonies because the death of Jesus fulfills all the shadows of that old covenant system. He is the once for all sacrifice for sin. And so no other sacrifice ever needs to be offered. This is, as it were, God's final statement on the temple as the place where God needs to be approached and needs to be met. And Jesus becomes the new temple. He, he paves the way for those of us who believe in him to be indwelt by the very Spirit of God. And know this, that curtain will not be sewn back up. There is no hope in the future that the temple is the place where people are going to find salvation once more. It's, it's torn and it remains torn and it will always be torn because Jesus has opened up that way. And so that, that, that tearing of the curtain then, there's more symbolism, isn't there? It speaks of, of access to God being opened to all people. And that access to the Father is no longer found in the temple, but it's found in Christ. The book of Hebrews expands on this idea. You just saw the tip of the iceberg at the beginning there of, of Hebrews chapter 9, but this idea that Jesus has opened up access for all to come to God through Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you this afternoon, if you want to spend some time meditating on Scripture, that Hebrews 9 and 10 would be great to, to just read through those chapters. Maybe read them aloud with uh, with someone else. Those are, just would really drive home exactly what's happening in this tearing of the curtain. But... But the author of Hebrews, and I think it's right, it's an encouragement for us to, to pray, to approach God regularly and boldly and unceasingly. We don't need a priest to intercede for us. The way has been opened for everyone to come in. We have all been made priests by faith in Christ. We don't have to wait for special days or hours when we can go to God, because the curtain has been torn, and it's always open, and it will always remain open. There's these supernatural events, the darkness, the tearing of the curtain. So Luke has directed our attention to the sky in verse 44. The, the focus shifts then to the temple in verse 45. And then in verse 46, we return back to the cross, to the person of Christ. And the third event we see is the death of the Son of God. The death of the Son of God. Just notice again in passing that Luke doesn't spend time describing the physical details of the crucifixion. That is not his focus. His focus is on the words of Christ and on the way in which he died. Both of which continue to testify that Jesus is in complete control of everything that is happening. They remind us of the words in John 10:18. Jesus says, No one takes it, my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He's in complete control. That's why none of the gospel writers use the word that would be typically used for someone dying. Because that's not really what happens here. What's the, what's he, what do they say? He says, He breathed his last. Joshua pointed out that he was a, last week, that he was a willing sacrifice. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, he chose when to breathe his last breath. He was in complete control. But just before that moment, 
He prays one more time to his father. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Often when when people die, they entrust their belongings to others, whether it's their home or their money or other valuables that they might have. These things are valuable to them as long as they are alive, but once they die, they're of no value to them, and so they give them to others. Maybe you have been given something in that way, something of great value, whether it's just sentimental or, or whether it is of true, of, of some sort of monetary value. Someone's given that to you. They've committed it to you. They've entrusted it to you before they died. Some people have special things that they want to give to people before they die, you know a watch or a special piece of jewelry, and before I die, I will entrust this to, to my child or, or to a close friend. Think about Jesus, who from the moment he began his ministry, he says he had no, no place to even lay his head. He had nothing tangible that he could entrust to anyone. It's interesting, he does entrust his responsibility to care for his mother, he gives that to John. He takes what was what was his responsibility and he entrusts that to to John. He didn't have clothes anymore. They'd already been bartered over and torn into pieces. So he's hanging naked on the cross. He's bereft of all earthly possessions. Even his body is not his own. Because in the next passage, Joseph of Arimathea has to go to the Roman authorities and ask for the body of Jesus. He owns nothing. All he has is his spirit, as it were, his soul. Now, I don't know what that means for Jesus, the Son of God, to have a spirit. I I can't fully grasp that. But it's poignant that, that he would take the one thing that he still possesses, and what does he do with it? He gives it to the Father. Jesus has lived his entire life in submission to the Father. We, we saw early on in Luke that when he's 12 years old, he's, he's in the temple. Why? Because I have to be about my Father's business. And then all through his ministry, he is continually giving himself over to the Father, praying to the Father. And, and hours before this, when he's in the garden, he submits one more time to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. His entire life was lived in submission to the Father. His, his entire life was entrusted to the Father. And now at the end, he is still fully owned by God. As I was thinking about this phrase, I think in many ways, couldn't this be the summary of what the Christian life is? That when we come to God, we are entrusting ourselves completely to him, body and soul. God, you have everything that we are. We come to, when we come to Christ in faith, he is not just our ticket to heaven, He's the Lord of our lives. He's the possessor of our very souls. We trust Him with everything that we are. We wake up each day and we go to bed each night entrusting our lives into His hands. And we don't just put our temporary earthly lives into His hands. We're, We're putting our eternal souls into the hands of the Father, trusting that He will do what is best, that He will care for us, and He will always do what is right, and ultimately that He will save us. I think that entrusting of ourselves to God, that that is a daily battle, isn't it? Because I want to wake up and I want to hold on and I want to entrust myself to myself because I'm more trustworthy than God, right? I can control things better than he can. But isn't that the constant battle that we would give all that we are as a living sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable, that we would grow to trust him? 
And I think if we follow Jesus, that was the pattern of his life. So this moment when he entrusts his soul to the Father, he's been preparing this for this his entire life. And so, too, for each of us, when it comes time for us to die, which will happen to all of us, except that Christ maybe returns, when that comes, we can peaceably and we can confidently entrust our souls to the Father. Whether we die in the midst of violence, as Jesus did, or whether we die in tranquility, we can peacefully entrust our souls to God and know that he will do what is right. I, that's a supernatural thing, isn't it? That's a gift that, that only God can give. But I think it's a gift that God does long to give to his children. That, that when it comes time for us to die, that in peace we can trust our Father. We can know that he will do what is right with our souls. Jesus teaches us how to die. But I don't think he just teaches us how to die. He teaches us how to view the death of those that we love in Christ. That, that when it comes time for a loved one who we are confident has put their faith in Christ, that we, as, as, as Jesus entrusts his soul to the Father, and as we one day hope to entrust our souls to the Father, that we, as it were, can entrust the souls of those that we love who are in Christ to the Father and know that he will do what is right. Isn't that a beautiful thing that we can do as Christians? That, that we can, in the midst of the pain of someone's passing, in, from this life into the next, we, we are given this peace that passes all understanding that, God, you always do what is right. And we'll take this person that we love, their very soul, and we can give it to you, God, and know that you will care for them perfectly. So these, these three divine and supernatural things circling around in the midst of the crucifixion, the, the darkness that goes over the whole earth, the tearing of the temple, curtain, and then the death of the Son of God. Luke then records three responses of the witnesses. Three responses of the witnesses. I don't think these responses are easily categorized, so I just want to kind of pose them as simple questions. The, the first we would put on the lips of the centurion there, um, we'll, we'll see the centurion in verse 47, the crowd in verse 48, and then the acquaintances and the women who had followed Jesus there in verse 49. But the first would be on the lips of the centurion. And the question he is sort of asking is, what did this man do wrong? What did this man do wrong? The, the centurion, a Roman soldier, would have participated in the crucifixion of Christ to some extent. But in watching all of these events unfold before him and seeing the way in which Jesus died this centurion saw something different in Jesus than he saw in all the other people that he had watched be crucified there was something unique about this man and Luke again emphasizes what the innocence of Jesus he did nothing wrong he didn't deserve this he says Jesus is innocent or another way you could phrase it maybe your Bible translates it that he was righteous that's who he was. He was a righteous man. Luke, again, emphasizes the outcast and the unexpected people. And here he is, a Gentile, not just a Gentile, but a Roman, and not just a Roman, but a Roman soldier, is one of the only guys there that gets it and understands who Jesus is. He was innocent. So like this man, when we look at the cross, we should worship Jesus. 
We should worship Jesus as the only sinless human being to ever live. He did nothing deserving death. He did not die for his sins, but he died for our sins. And I think that's in part the the response that we see of those who gathered from the city to see these things. So the centurion says, what did this man do wrong? And as the crowds walk away, they say, what have we done? What have we just done? They they beat their breasts, it says. It's a sign of grief, a sign of, of mourning. That morning they had they had joined the mob and they had called for his crucifixion. They'd come to this place to 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 be entertained, to see the spectacle of someone dying. But as they walked away, they left with with heavy hearts. They were grieved at what had happened. Who knows what what if this grief paved the way for the great ingathering at Pentecost? That they 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 were God was already working in their hearts to see what their sin had done. But as we think about that question, what have we done, we see that there's a culpability, there's a responsibility, there's a guilt for all of us that we share in the death of Christ, in the crucifixion of Christ. So if the centurion reminds us that Jesus never sinned, then the crowd reminds us that we have. We're called to be filled with grief over our sin and to look at the cross and see what our sin has done to the sinless Son of God. It shows us what our sins deserve. So what did this man do wrong? What have we done? And then the final group are these acquaintances and those who had followed Jesus. This special group of women in particular who had followed Christ and had followed him all the way from Galilee. These women had had staked their lives completely on Jesus. They had followed him from a far distance and are there at Jerusalem with him. And they stand, it says, at a distance. They're they're further away. And they see Jesus' final breath. And it's as if they are asking, what are we going to do? Now what? These people had staked their lives on the hope that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. And now they watch him breathe his last, and they say, what are we going to do? That's what the, the men on the road to Emmaus in chapter 24 say. They said, we thought he was the Messiah, but now we don't know what to think. We know that if this is the end of the, the story, that, that they should feel grief. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what does he say? If there is no resurrection, then we are of all men most to be pitied. We would have no hope. The book that I mentioned earlier at the beginning, In the Heart of the Sea, the author is Nathaniel Philbrick, and he describes this, this scene as the men, the, the, the ship has capsized. They take everything that they can from it, the fresh water, the food, navigational devices, anything that they can get for their journey that's ahead of them. And they take it out, and then as they, they go away from the ship, these three boats filled with 20 men, are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, have no idea what to do. And it says this, at 12.30, less than half, less than a half hour after the officers had convened their council to decide where they were going, they set out in a strong breeze, their schooner-rigged whaleboats, according to Nickerson, a very handsome show on this, our first start. The men's spirits were the lowest they'd ever been. With the Essex, that's the name of their boat, receding rapidly behind them, They were beginning to appreciate what Nickerson called the slender thread upon which our lives were hung. 
All were affected by leaving their ship for the last time. Even the stoic Chase, who was the first mate, could not help but wonder at how we looked upon our shattered and sunken vessel with such an excessive fondness and regret. It seemed as if, abandoning her, we had parted with all hope. The men exchanged frightened glances, even as they continued to search out the disappearing wreck, as though, Nickerson said, it were possible that she could relieve us from the fate that seemed to await us. As I was thinking about this, the the response of the disciples, it just feels like that, doesn't it? That everything that they had put their hope in is now sunk before them. Their hopes had been staked on that ship, and now it was destroyed. And they look back longingly at it. And I just thought, what if, what if that ship had just suddenly risen out of the water? You know, the, the hull is repaired and, and the water all pours from the sides. You can almost envision it. And it just, boom, it's back up. And, and can you imagine that? That'd be a miracle. It'd be a resurrection of the Essex. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we should feel the hopelessness of a dead Savior. We should feel that. But even as we look at the death, we should see that that the death of Christ was, was for us. It wasn't his defeat, was it? It would be, and it was in that moment, even his triumph. In dying as the innocent Son of God, Jesus took all the darkness of our sin. All the darkness of God's wrath, all the darkness of hell, he took it upon himself for us. And allowing his body to be torn, as it were, by those who hated him, he tore open the curtain so that we could enter in and be made right with God. In breathing his last, he breathes new life into our dead souls and breathes into us, as it were, the Holy Spirit that comes and indwells and makes us new. And in all of this, it's, it's right to look forward to when he would once more not breathe out, but he would breathe in, in the tomb, and he would be resurrected to, to new life. He would rise from the dead with this promise of new life for all who would believe. And so I would ask, have you... Have you entrusted your soul to the Father? To the Father who willingly sent his Son to die for our sins so that he could make us members of his kingdom for all eternity. If you have not, then you have no hope. Any other ship that would take you to safety is sunken in the water and there is no hope for you. Jesus is the only one that has risen out of the water and can bear us away to salvation. There's no other way of salvation but through the torn veil of Christ's flesh. So I'll ask you these questions. What had Jesus done wrong? Nothing. What have we done wrong? Everything. And what should we do now? Repent. Believe in Christ. Have you entrusted your soul to the Father? And then for those of us who are children of God, I just want to give you these final responses to God's Word. Just some phrases. Let us worship Jesus. Let us worship Jesus as the sinless Son of God. 
Let us grieve over our sin. The sin for which Jesus was crucified. Let's feel the hopelessness of a dead Jesus. And let's anticipate the resurrection. And then finally, let's afresh and anew entrust our lives, entrust our very souls to the care of our loving Heavenly Father. In Christ, what he, he invites us into the holy place. He invites us into his presence, even now. And when it comes time for each of us to, to breathe our last, we can with confidence know that he will bear our souls to his eternal home, to the place that he's preparing for us, and we will be with him for all eternity. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and then I will pray for us. Father, we we again confess that we are saved, we are sanctified, we, we live by faith alone. But it's not some blind faith. Father, we, we can entrust everything to you. There's no safer place to put our lives and to put our souls than into your hands. Oh, did we even see that with Jesus, who who has gone ahead of us, who has faced death and conquered it and risen again. So Lord, we we can entrust ourselves completely to you and know that you will do what is right and that you alone have conquered death and sin and can take us to your heavenly home. So Lord, we thank you for the strong hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for this scene of darkness of division, of, of despair, of death. Lord, they, they remind us that, that in you alone we can have life. So Lord, fill our hearts with, with sorrow for sin, with love for Christ. And God, just a, a, this renewed passion to give ourselves completely to you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here and they're hoping in something else, to bring them salvation, that you would completely undercut that. You would help them to see that that Jesus is their only hope. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.